This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. Hey guys, this week I'm excited to bring you my chat with Connor Haley. Connor is the founder and managing partner of Altafox Capital and is currently the highest ranked member on Microcap Club. Connor focuses all his attention on the fundamental unit economics of business, as well as what makes for a lasting competitive advantage. We spend an hour diving into the nuances of business fundamentals, unit economics, and why Connor rarely does a DCF. As always, nothing you hear on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Connor may hold positions in any of the names mentioned throughout the podcast, and investors should conduct their own due diligence before making any investment decisions. All right, so let's kind of dive right in here. I know that you've done previous podcasts, both with Bobby Kraft and Tobias, and they those are excellent podcasts. And if anybody wants to listen to them, I would encourage you to do so. So there's a lot of background that you've already covered in there. But real quick, for our, for our listeners that may haven't listened to it, who are you and how did you get started in investing? Sure. So, you know, I, I got into investing pretty early. I, I caught the bug early. Um, you know, I really as a, a, a freshman in high school, uh, I was, was in an economics elective at the time and we sort of did a stock market game. You competed against other schools, sort of virtual uh, competition. And I didn't know anything about investing at the time, but uh, I did have a, sort of a proclivity for um, very analytical games and was very competitive. I'd previously been a chess player and um, you know, this, it really just sparked my interest in investing. And so I went to Yahoo Finance, looked at different companies, didn't have any idea what any of it meant. And uh, that, that really was the beginning of the journey for me. And, you know, over the next several years, I, I just read everything I could. Um, you know, I, I initially got into some of the Motley Fool investing books, you know, immediately fundamental investing uh, was something that made sense to me. Long-term investing was something that made sense to me, thinking about stocks as sort of part ownership of businesses rather than something you just trade. Um, and, and I just continue to try and um, improve my knowledge over time. And, you know, fast forward to senior year of high school, I was spending a few hours a day on uh, sites like uh, mostly retail oriented sites like the street.com, the Motley Fool, et cetera. And I'd had some, some pretty good success in a small personal account as well as, you know, on the uh, Motley Fool's caps, which is a program, which is basically their, their, virtual investing competition ranks you against the market ranks you against other um, players as well uh, on their, on their platform and had done pretty well. I think it was in the top 5% or so. And um, at that point I, I reached out to sort of both of those firms and to my surprise, they got back to me and sort of had uh, internship opportunities available. And so um, I, you know, deferred my admission to Harvard for a year. I worked for six months at the street.com in New York city uh, Jim Kramer's company. And then I worked for uh, approximately six months at the Motley Fool in Alexandria, Virginia. And this is, you know, before I had even gone to college. So that was just an amazing and somewhat unique experience, uh, which I think really, you know, put me in a, in a good position to accelerate my learning by that point. Um, you know, it, I would say I, I'm, I'm mostly self-taught. I, uh, frankly, I probably learned most about investing from just reading everything Joel Greenblatt has ever written, um, as well as, you know, the site he founded, Value Investors Club. So when I was in high school, I, I printed out a binder of you know, every stock that had gone up 5X or more on the site since the beginning of Value Investors Club, which was a very large binder. Uh, and, you know, went, along with all of the comments and, and went through every single one sort of with a pencil and a highlighter. And you know, it was just an absolute, absolutely fascinating case study because, you get to see, read about these companies that have been real winners over time. And you also get to read the comments and like the pushback they got from other investors at the time. You know, sometimes investors bailed out of their idea too early. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes there were strong sort of bearish, bearish sentiments on the idea. You know, you just really get to develop pattern recognition, which also really resonated with me because, you know, coming from a chess background, 
you know, the way you learn about, one of the ways you improve at chess, you improve your pattern recognition is these things called tactics books where you basically, you look at a position and you try to understand, uh, or it'll be something like, you know, white to move and mate in five. And, you know, it's, it's a position that you're almost for sure never going to see again. However, going through the exercise of trying to see what the, what the right combination is um, allows your sort of brain to uh, pick up the, the commonalities between that position and a position you may see in the future and so that you can improve your pattern recognition. And that, that also really resonated with me because, you know, I wanted to get as good as I possibly could at investing as quickly as possible. And the idea of, you know, well, you got to go work for somebody for 20 years, right? And go through a bunch of drawdowns and have that type of experience to learn didn't really, um, you know, that, that's, that's not that appealing. I'd much rather learn from someone else's mistakes. And, you know, certainly I've made a lot of mistakes uh, over the years, but, um, you know, being able to go through hundreds of ideas um, of, from other investors and really study them, I think really improved my pattern recognition and, and just sparked my interest anymore. So uh, anyways, so fast forward to Harvard. So I joined the Harvard Financial Analyst Club, sort of the uh, largest group on Harvard's campus, got really involved, ended up working for two small cap hedge funds, um, my sort of freshman and sophomore year, my junior year, I worked for Goldman Sachs and their special situations group uh, in their MSI division, which, you know, sort of Goldman um, Capital invested for Goldman in public equities, public debt, and then was able to leverage that into a um, full-time analyst role right out of school with a firm called Scopia Capital. I spent uh, about three and a half years there and then uh, moved back to Texas at the end of um, 20 at the beginning of 2018 launched out the Fox April of 2018. So, you know, two and a half years in roughly, uh, I've got one analyst now and, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it really, I've loved, uh, small cap investing. Um, I, I've, I've really, I really enjoy the challenge of sort of smaller companies, um, trying to find more unique ideas, but ultimately trying to be really disciplined, uh, use pattern recognition, to try and find the best and highest quality businesses at the lowest possible prices and uh, you know, exploit what I think is sort of a structural alpha opportunity within the small and micro cap space. I'll pause there. Yeah, no, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot for me to digest. Um, but I've got, I've got two initial questions from that before we unpack a little bit more. The first one, you said that you took a gap year from uh, high school to college before you went to Harvard. Did you ever think during that process that maybe school just wasn't for you? Maybe college wasn't for you? And the only reason I asked that um, is because you said that you were mostly self-taught. And I know a lot of this value investing, a lot of this, uh, you know, small cap, micro cap business analysis outside of, let's say, Wharton and outside of Joel Greenblatt's class, it's not really taught in school. So did yeah. you ever think, you know, hey, maybe I don't need this. Maybe I'm self-taught and I can just keep going. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think you know, I always knew that, you know, for better or for worse, and I think probably for worse, <laughs> and this applies to a lot of different industries, I think, you know, the, the college um, sort of degree is, is sort of required and viewed as uh, necessary, even if sort of what you learn there is not uh, uh, sort of necessary for specific job skills. I think that certainly applies to investing. I mean, no class I ever took at Harvard, um, you know, prepared me to be an investor. Now, I will say, you know, there are some parallels in critical thinking and, you know, I, uh, I, I wrote a lot at Harvard, a lot of critical thinking, you know, analytical essays, like that definitely applies. I think being a, a clear writer, a clear thinker is uh, very helpful in investing, but yeah, you know, th they don't even offer accounting at Harvard. So um, I did not but, know that. Yeah, they don't. You have to take it through MIT and it's a complete lottery process and uh, I didn't win the lottery. So uh, <laughs> again, <laughs> I had to sort of self-teach there as well. But uh, yeah, you know, I think um, if that had been a realistic option to get where I wanted to be, then perhaps I would have considered it. That being said, I did really love my four years at Harvard and um, I, I'm not I'm not sure I would trade that for anything. But, but yeah, I, I think... Uh, and, and I also plugged into like a really smart community there that was also passionate about investing. And, you know, we competed in a bunch of competitions, you know, we beat Wharton every time we competed against them uh, proudly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a great experience, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it was necessary. It, it was necessary from a skills perspective, but you know, I don't think I could have gotten those internships without it. I don't think I could have you know worked for Goldman without it. And I certainly couldn't have gotten my job 
you know, out of school, but that's, that's sort of a larger uh, sort of college question, not uh, investing specific. Yeah, it's always, it's always fun just to posit looking five to 10 years out the future of what education might look like and the dynamics in terms of yep. networking and just the social benefits of college, but also the realization that you can learn all this on YouTube and books for free. Um, and, and, or for, right. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point, though, because, you know, I, I sort of have this, this view that I, I think the investors, the best investors of the next generation will be very, will, will be developed and formed much differently than the, the best investors of sort of the, uh, the, the, the hedge fund heydays or, or as it was sort of a, a nascent industry and growing. And, and really what I mean by that is, um, you know, I, originally, if you look at, you know, some of the Tiger Cub funds, for example, and these really pedigreed funds, you know, they, they came from Julian Robertson and then all of his sort of offspring funds, right? And you know, it was sort of a very much an apprenticeship business. And I think there's still a, a, an old school sort of view in the industry. Well, oh, you got to go work for XYZ, you know, apprentice and then uh, learn how he does it and then, you know, tweak it. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're ready to go. I, I think that's really an outdated sort of model for, for a lot of reasons, right? And, you know, one, there's way more information than ever before in, our, in order to teach yourself, right? So when I say I'm self-taught, I, you know, sure, I, I you know, did my absolute best to learn everything I could, but it was from relying on the readings and teachings that are now all digitally available, right? From, you know, Joel Greenblatt's Columbia Business School Notes and his books and Peter Lynch and Value Investors Club and other, you know, very successful investor letters. Like there's so much out there today that, you know, 20 years ago, if you were trying to uh, teach yourself would not have been available, at least not in, not in the same sort of abundance. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a very interesting point. And I think the, the best investors for the next generation, in my opinion, will be the ones that, um, you know, they're not hoping they win a lottery ticket and they find that rare person that is, is, uh, you know, very, is, is an elite investor, right? right? And then also is willing and able to pass that on, right? That's, I think, pretty rare. And, and, you know, frankly, people have different investing personalities and styles anyways. And so even if you have the capacity to be a great investor and you find that rare person who's elite and, and is also, uh, you know, ready and able to teach you, I think uh, it may not be the same style for you. It might not be the right style for you. So I think, you know, the people who I tend to respect the most um, are people who, who really find their own investing style and, and process and, uh, you know, try to learn from the greats who have paved the path sort of before them. Well, yeah, you made the comment that there's so much more information available. And one of the analogies I always revert to, and I don't know, I think, aren't you a pretty, um, poke, uh, pretty, pretty decent poker player or you like to play poker? Uh, I, I you know, I would say, I, I would say I'm a decent poker player. I would not okay. Say yeah. I'm, okay. Yeah. So the, the analogy goes, and I forget where I heard it. It was to, on some investing podcast, but basically the reason why today's poker players are so much, I don't want to say better, but way quicker to adapt to the game is you had the online poker rise. And now instead of playing one hand, going physically to a casino, you can now have multiple tabs open, playing multiple hands all at the same time. So you get all those reps in right. way quicker than if you had to physically go to a casino. And I wonder if that's going to be the case for investors five, 10, 20 years from now, where there's so much information that they can learn from so many people's mistakes and actually see them and watch right. them and have like a fireside chat with all these people making mistakes that it's going to just skyrocket that learning curve. We're now instead of you yeah, know, just like and this I think, gentle rise, it's this long-term exponential growth. Yeah. I, it, I think it's really interesting. And to like my point earlier, I mean, I think the, the sort of analogy for investing is, um, you know, I think there's this conventional view that the, the best investors, you know, have gray hair and they've seen full market cycles and they've had all these drawdowns and they've learned from it and they've had this apprenticeship model. And I'm not discrediting the, the quality of that for sure. And there's some great investors that sort of fit that mold. But I also think that, you know, take, take a comparison like with chess, for example, right? Chess is also a very cerebral game, right? Uh, very intense, very competitive. And, you know, the best chess players, you know, peak in their you know, 20s and 30s, right? And uh, then you see a real decline, uh, which I think is consistent with sort of cognitive function as well. And so, uh, you know, why can't, uh, why don't you need the same experience in chess, right? See, play, you know, a player in his 50s can play so many more games than a player in his 20s. And I think the, 
the, the reason is like you need to see ideas all the way through. And, but I think if you have real deliberate practice by studying older ideas, right, whether it be, you know, Value Investors Club or, or whatever you want to do, but if you can really try to put your mind um, into the investor at the time they were making the investment and sort of see how that plays out, then it, it becomes a tactics book. And I think you can accelerate your learning. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's a really interesting concept. And I think, uh, uh, it, it will be interesting to see if the, the best investors of the next generation are able to accelerate their learning given how, how many digital tools are available. Yeah, this brings us right into our next sort of two-part question. I want to I wanna combine these two, the idea of uh, having an investment process evolve over time and then in contrast that with uh, your thoughts on why hedge funds, why larger hedge funds have outperformed uh, so drastically recently. And the two-part question is, do you think that this outperformance has to do with a lack of evolution in the investment process, almost like a staunch acceptance to, you know, we're value, we're only looking for low price to book, low price earnings. And that's that because of some institutional requirement. Um, do you think that there's a correlation between those or if not, maybe explain your, your thoughts there? Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, in general, like what's happened is the larger hedge funds have taken more assets from, you know, the, 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 the rich have gotten richer in the, in the hedge fund world, right? The bigger funds have gotten more allocations to the detriment of smaller funds, you know, compliance costs and things have generally gone up. Uh, it's been a tough fundraising environment for small investors as well. And you put all these things together and like the rich get, uh, the, the big get bigger and, the, and it's tougher for the smaller funds. And uh, that being said, like the, the, all, the other dynamic is that hedge funds in general have underperformed meaningfully just as an industry over the last, you know, pick whatever time frame you want really over the last 10 years. And sure, we've been in a bull market, but you know, I think it's, it's always interesting because, uh, you know, if you, if you view the, the hedge fund industry and all of its participants as their own business and their own, they have their own sort of business strategy, competitive dynamics, et cetera, you know, hedge fund investors, they all, they all want to be unique, right? They all want to say, Oh, we do this differently. They, we do this better, but, Typically, uh, most of the large funds, they, they hire the same types of candidates from the same types of schools with the same type of process and headhunters and, you know, from the same banks. It's, it's a very, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's sort of black and white. Like, there's, there's not a lot of variation there. Um, and really, hedge funds, their, their main asset is their people. And, and so that's kind of interesting. Like, how are you actually differentiating yourself from a recruiting perspective, how do you get the best talent? Like if I was an allocator, that'd be something I'd be very interested in understanding. And then right. to look at the allocators, uh, but it's not a question I've heard very often. <laughs> and then to look at the allocators, um, you know, their incentives are a little skewed as well, right? Um, you know, they have been allocating to these larger and larger funds that, you know, many of them do the exact same type of thing. They, they don't really have any edge. And, you know, it's, you know, there are a lot of incentives there that explain that for, you know, you never get fired for buying IBM, right? That's the, that, that analogy applies to picking funds as well. And, um, you know, I think that's to the real detriment because there is a lot of research out there saying, you know, smaller, more nimble funds can, uh, um, you know, generate outperformance relative to, to larger funds, but yet the rich have gotten richer. And so I think it's just this interesting dynamic where there's a lack of individual creative thought, um, you know, in the industry of how, how should this be structured? How can this be different in this traditional mold of, well, you're going to have these, these large funds with, you know, really, you know, older tenured people at the top who had a very specific formal education background, et cetera, um, you know, worked at various banks and that's, that, that will permeate through throughout the entire, uh, the, you know, fund, the entire industry relationships to allocators, et cetera. So I think that's, I think that's pretty interesting because look, I, I've seen a little bit of both of it, right? You know, I, in some ways I do have that formal background, right? I, I went to Harvard, like I, you know, interned at Goldman Sachs, worked for multi-billion dollar hedge funds. I've, I've seen that and I've, mm -hmm. I've benefited from that to, in some respect. However, I've also seen the other side, right? You know, I'm part of, um, you know, online investment community, communities, right? Like Value Investors Club and, and Microcap Club, et cetera. Some of whom have sort of a similar sort of formal background in education and, and, and training, but many who do, who do not. And frankly, some of, the, some of the best investors I've seen do not fit that traditional mold. And you know, I think the, the industry and, and funds and allocators are making just huge mistakes by not broadening their view of 
you know, what, what does a great investor look like? What are we looking for? How can we, um, you know, in the elusive search for alpha, how can we find truly differentiated, you know, thinkers? Um, well, they're going to the same pools over and over again. So I, I think it's just, it's a conundrum that's difficult to explain until you understand the incentives involved, which are not for, uh, you know, producing, you know, the best returns over time. You mentioned Microcap Club, and I just want to take the time to say that you are currently, I know it was Maj from Geoinvesting. At one point, he held the belt, but now you're <laughs> back to number one. Is that is that how that goes? I, honestly, I'm not even sure it, it bounces around. <laughs> uh, I've been a top rank member for a while. I joined when I was in college. Um, you know, I, I uh, uh, it's been a great community, though. There's, there's a bunch of great investors on there, and um, I've really enjoyed getting to know a lot of them. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's been great to also bring exposure to the club in a positive way. Ian Castle, who started it, has done a really great job. I think you guys should get like an actual physical belt or something, like a WWE <laughs> style belt at the end of the year. You, you should run that by time. Ian. I think that's a great idea. I will, because you could do the MCC logo just like WWE. Just do the <laughs> M at the top and then two overlapping Cs. Make it real nice. I think you're on to something. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll DM him, see if, he, see if he gets back to me. <laughs> I want to take now a few, a few moments to talk about your three-pronged portfolio game plan. Uh, you mentioned it in a previous investor letter, and actually, we're going to get to uh, how you fared in this most recent quarter after this, because um, I know you knocked the socks off the baseball. But your last letter ran through these three ideas, this threefold strategy, which is maintain disciplined risk control, use drawdowns to rebalance into structural winners, and then remain calm, rational, and fundamental focus. In light of everything that happened in COVID, this strategy was definitely tested. So walk us through each of these categories and explain why they made it to this three-pronged attack. Yeah, and I think that while these are always applicable, this was you know a specific game plan that I wanted to emphasize for this COVID-related uncertainty because you know, in the, in the middle and late March, you know, maximum uncertainty in the markets, um, widespread panic. It was really difficult to underwrite, um, you know, invest, even investments that were previously considered very stable, right? What, what you thought were good balance sheets suddenly turned precarious. Um, you know, what you thought were very consistent businesses suddenly had zero revenue. You know, it, it was very difficult for the market to look out even 12 months and say, I think you can earn, you know, within a reasonable degree of confidence between X and Y and therefore value it. Um, and so, you know, what, what I decided to do was to say, look, um, so many of these businesses are difficult to underwrite. Um, you know, I don't want to have a particularly strong uh, or sort of bullish or bearish COVID view. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, right? I'm not going to pretend to be one. Yeah. Um, I like to understand businesses, competitive advantages, um, and, and sort of underwrite them to reasonable base cases over time. But uh, it was so hard to do that for a majority of companies. And so what I tried to do was, number one, for businesses that I no longer could understand or that I thought had good balance sheets but now didn't, I didn't want to risk any impairment of capital. So I pretty quickly tried to get out of the businesses that uh, I thought were most exposed to weakness. Right. Um, and, you know, if COVID turned out to be even worse than we expected, may not have made, made it. So, you know, I, I had like a small regional casino uh, sort of special situation investment. You know, I, I had to get out of it, right? At a loss. Like you just had to take your medicine a little bit because at that point in time, the facts had changed. And I had to say, well, what do I think is a reasonable case over the next three years? And how can I value it? And I really had very little confidence in doing that. And so, you know, I think you've got to just reallocate to things where you do have confidence that you can earn a really good return. And so um, now that was what you could have confidence in at that point in time was a very small subset of the market, but it still exists. Right. And so, uh, you know, I invested in names that were primarily COVID neutral or, or even beneficiaries of COVID yet we're still seeing big drawdowns. Um, so you're buying them at, at, uh, sort of valuations not seen in a long time, in some cases ever, even though the fundamentals were the same or accelerating. And, mm -hmm. you know, in examples where there were several companies in online gambling that I mentioned um, in, my, in my Q1 letter, um, there was like a, a provider of uh, 
you know, Italian product, food products and meatballs to grocery stores, like, you know, businesses that had neutral to positive COVID effects, because those you can actually underwrite, you know, and you were getting them at cheaper valuations than, than ever. So uh, that's sort of the, the, you know, rebalancing into structural winners, um, continuing to uh, maintain your sort of portfolio exposures, risk limits, both on a gross and net basis. Um, and then finally, you just like take a deep breath, right? Because it was tough in March. Like every day you just, you know, you, you, you get pummeled in the markets. You look at the futures the next night, uh, awaiting the carnage <laughs> that lied ahead. You'd wake I've never up, you'd... seen so many people just hone in on the, I mean, like if you just looked at FinTwit, it was like as soon as it hits 6 p.m., it's like yeah. futures down. Absolutely. It was, it was a depressing environment. And um, at the same time, if you were able, it, it, but it's particularly depressing if you don't know what your businesses are worth, if right. you don't have confidence, right? If you're just hoping that, you know, COVID goes away quickly and your business can bounce back, then that's a very stressful position to be in. And it's, look, it's, it's stressful no matter what. However, if, if you've rebalanced into structural winners where you understand sort of what COVID impact will be and you, you feel good about sort of a three to five year IRR with conservative estimates, then, you know, even when the market's bouncing around, you can stay calm because you know what your business is worth. And the market tends to get it right over time. And so that was an extraordinary period of, of stress in the markets. And uh, I, th I think it really helped, though, having a game plan of, of you know, getting out of the names where you didn't have conviction and uh, reallocating to names where you did. Well, I think more of it, too. And, you know, this isn't to say that you don't take a, bottoms up approach or that a top down or a bottom down approach is is is, is better or worse but if you zoom out 30,000 feet and instead of the company level you look at okay is this industry going to be around and thrive over the next 10 20 years if you can get comfortable with the industry and actually maybe go farther and say if you can be excited about the industry and its trajectory over the next 10 20 years then there's even more comfort in that so you've got a good business inside of a great industry with long runways and these long tailwinds. And so I think if you just take almost, because I know a lot of investors, they try to do that bottoms up approach. They're like, all right, if the business is solid, but then the problem is if you have a great business in a crummy industry or an industry that's in a systemic decline, there's less confidence you can have unless it's, you know, just a box of cash trading less than cash. Yeah, definitely. I mean, taking an industry, having an industry view is very important to me. I always want to understand like who the winners are in the industry, who the losers are. And ultimately I try to put my, myself in the mind of, you know, the CEO of every sort of type of participant in that industry, right? Like if you're a smaller player, how are you trying to compete and extract value? If you're a larger player, like what's your, what's your strategy, you know, understanding how each, you know, competitor in a market is, is trying to compete is, is really important because, you know, then, then you can have a view on whose strategy makes the most sense, who gets it, who doesn't. And uh, you know, who, who, who do you want to buy long? Who do you want to short? Let's, let's move now to an area that I want to spend a good bulk of time in. Um, you know, I know we're trying to stay within this, within this hour, so I, so I want to jam the most value that I can uh, in, this, in this hour. And I want to talk about competitive advantages and unit economics, because one of the things that I love about your letters, um, and a lot of other investors do it, but for some reason when I would read your letters, I would fully understand this idea of unit economics and the importance of unit economics. And so when you first look at a business, how quickly can you tell uh, if this business has some positive unit, unit economics about it and if it has these competitive advantages that you're looking for, whether it's switching costs, network effects, scale, all that stuff. And then within that question, how has that evolved over time? Like, have you been able to reduce the amount of time it takes for you to find these competitive advantages and unit economics? And, you know, if so, how did, how did that transition or what did that transition look like? Sure. So, Let's see. So uh, I think for starters, you know, unit economics, like it's, it's not, uh, it's not a number you can find on Yahoo finance, right. Or Bloomberg or cap IQ. And that's both the uh, frustration to some investors, but also that's the beauty of it too, right? Because most investors aren't digging that deep for, for a lot of these businesses. And so it's something that, um, you know, you, you have to really parse out and, uh, uh, develop on your own, given your, your, your understanding of the business and the industry. But um, for, I'll start with competitive advantages. I mean, I think about um, competitive advantages, I, I think of four different types. So uh, network effects, 
uh, sort of cost advantages, intangible, intangible assets, and then switching costs, sort of in CIS, sort of, uh, you know, popular show. I, I think about it in terms of that acronym. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think you can tie pretty much all competitive advantages down to one of those four. And, uh, you know, I think when you're, when you first start reading about a business, whether it's an investor presentation, 10K, et cetera, looking at the financials, you can have some kind of guess as to what type of competitive advantage they're pursuing, but you don't really know if it truly exists, right? Because mm. industries evolve over time. Uh, competitor, you know, new entrants will come into a market uh, and try to disrupt things. And so you need to see tests against the moat, right, over time. And you need to see sort of validation for people trying to compete against that moat. And so, you know, um, I talked about a, a company called, you know, Evolution Gaming, for example, in Q1, which I, full disclosure, do still own today. And, you know, it, it's without getting into the weeds, you know, they, they're basically a B2B provider of, um, they, they operate live casino products for, for casinos. So whether you're a physical operator or an online operator, you can, you can now offer your table games through Evolution Games with a live dealer to your customers. So people can play poker from the comfort or people can play blackjack rather or baccarat um, or uh, roulette and a host of other games with a live dealer um, through your own website. And so it's, it's a very interesting business. And um, I wrote about in the Q1, uh, wrote about in the Q1 letter because one, it was a positive beneficiary of COVID, but two, you know, we did a lot of work on the competitive analysis because this is a company that you know has 50% plus EBITDA margins, mm -hmm. right? And the incrementals have been north of 70 for the last several quarters. And you know, with a business that's growing, you know, 50% uh, roughly organically, and they have those kinds of margins, you have to ask, well, what's the competitive advantage? Like, how is this possibly sustainable? Yeah. And I think you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with even some really smart investors I know in my network who have looked at it at first glance and. You know they, they don't get it um but the more they dig in the more we talk about it they more they start to realize like all the different competitive advantages but that's developed over time right um and so you know it's for example talking to a lot of the competitors right understanding that like the smallest player in the there's the, the sort of third tier player in the industry spend you know over 100 million euros over a bunch of years and has negative ebitda margins well, they have 50% plus, like that's pretty interesting. That's right. a yeah. huge gap, right? <laughs> yeah. The yeah. fact that the, uh, the, the fact that the second, you know, largest player in the industry, which has, you know, roughly 20% share, you know, compared to them at, uh, you know, call it roughly 70. Uh, the, the fact that the 20% player isn't even hoping to gain share, but is saying that they hope to maintain share. Like that's pretty interesting. Like, um, and then you talk to all the operators they work with and they just love it. And, and so, you know, those types of feedback, like their own competitors don't believe that they can gain share, even though they have evolution already has so much share. So like that's they're already thrown in the towel. Exactly. They're, they're sort of throwing in the towel, hoping to participate in industry growth. And I think they've already won the market. And so that's pretty interesting. Uh, but then you have to dig deeper. Like, why is that? Right. Um, are there other ways to compete against this moat? Um, and so, you know, I tried to understand, okay, well, what percentage of your, you know, what percentage of their games come from? Um, you know, their most popular three games, which is Baccarat, Roulette, and um, uh, I'm blanking on one. But, uh, um, and, and, you know, I, I think could somebody come in and only offer those games in like a cheaper sort of way? Like you got to try to compete against the moat. How would you compete against them if you yeah. had a lot of capital, um, motivated investors, and a good operating team? And ultimately, we decided that they had a lot of different competitive advantages. They had um, you know, they had significant cost and scale advantages. They had, um, you know, network effect advantages with friends playing on games, interacting with them. There, there's just a whole host of things there. But um, as part of that analysis, you also understand the unit economics. Like, why is this such a tremendous business? Well, right, compare it versus the unit economics of a typical casino operator, right? Because they both have to hire a dealer, right? They both have to have, you know, a nice branded looking table, right? Um, and they both have, you know, call it roughly the same take rate on a given game. However, uh, with the same, roughly the same amount of sort of fixed costs for the experience, the evolution can have, you know, a thousand plus people at one table playing roulette, right? Uh, a, a physical casino, just by 
definition of, of physical logistics, right? Like they can't do that. You may, maybe you can fit eight people around a roulette table, but not right. 10. So the unit economics change massively. You know, so one is a very competitive market where your competitors across the street. The other is a market where you have 70% you know, share. Nobody else can gain any share. It, it, nobody else even has um, realistic hopes of gaining share from you. And you've got 50% plus margins and 70% plus incrementals. So it's, it's a real mosaic process. So Fortunately, I can't say, you know, well, I look at this and this and figure out the unit economics. It depends, you know, if it's a retail concept, for example, like you want to really get into how a store matures over time, how much it costs to build. But you just want to understand, like, if you were running this business, how would you look at it, right? If you were trying to compete against this business, how would you compete against it, right? Um, I think just asking those types of questions and talking to really knowledgeable people in the industry, you start to come to some of these conclusions, which are ultimately both quali qualitative and quantitative, uh, but they, they sort of feed your conviction in the business. What do you think of the, what do you, what do you think of the edge of finding? I don't know if I'm going to ask this question correctly because it's noodled in my brain. So I'm just trying to, you know, siphon it out right now. But what do you, what do you think in terms of the alpha capability of thinking in different unit economic terms than other investors? So for instance, let's say in this example of evolution gaming, you're looking at the unit economics of the incremental value of a dealer, the incremental value of a table, or, you know, if that's even correct, but let's say that you have another idea of unit economics where you're basing, you know, like profit per something else or dollar of incremental value per something else. Do you know, do you kind of know where I'm going with that? Where it's like, you can have this differentiated approach to how you might figure out unit economics than the general investing public. Yeah. Well, I think, look, I think at, at the end of the day, any, any business, right. The, the whole point is, you know, you're, you're established, it's basically a math function, right? You put X in, you get some function of that coming out. Um, and you want that to be in, you know, all these complicated financial models and everything else, they're really just trying to build that function, right? And the function is sometimes really complicated and you got variable costs, you got fixed costs, you got different segments of revenue, different margin profiles, but you're ultimately trying to build that function out. And, you know, I think a lot of investors look at it on an aggregated basis. So they look at you know, they look at the overall, um, sorry, can we uh, pause for one second? Yeah, go ahead. All good. You got some popcorn in the microwave. <laughs> the, uh, sorry, page your BB. Um, they look at it on an aggregated basis. And so, uh, you know, they'll look at the, whether it be Cap IQ or Bloomberg or Yahoo Finance or whatever, and they'll look at overall revenue, overall margin trends, things like that. But there's so many things happening beneath that. And that really gets to, the unit economics. So if a company on a single transaction, right, is not generating attractive unit economics, and those, there's not a good reason to think that these unit economics will change, then it's never going to be a good business, right? Um, it's, now, it's possible that you could have good economics on a single, on sort of a unit economic basis, but that's still not a good business because maybe, you know, maybe the fixed costs associated to supporting that transaction are too, too large or, uh, maybe the unit economics are good, but you don't actually have a moat. So eventually those will get eroded over time. But I mean, uh, one of the fundamental questions is like, is the core unit economics good today? Because if yep. not, then you don't really have, you know, strong prospects of becoming a good business. So that, that's sort of like a, a requisite step. Um, in terms of, you know, looking at different things, you just have to strip the business apart. Um, so I definitely look at incremental margins, uh, you know, closely. That helps you understand right? What the, what the ultimate function is for the business, for the model, and therefore what the unit economics look like. Uh, but uh, everything, everything comes down to that sort of trend, or at least starts with that fundamental, you know, a customer is paying you X, you're giving them Y, what does that look like? Um, and then you layer on everything else on top of it. So I think unit economics is really important. Um, it's something we spend a lot of time trying to understand because you know, investors who own a bunch of different stocks, right? If you, if you own 500 different stocks, right? You're not going to be, if you're a mutual fund, like you're not going to be able to get to that level of understanding yeah. generally. Um, but, you know, if you run a concentrated portfolio, if you have the ability to invest a lot of research, a lot of time into understanding and stripping your businesses apart, then you can get to that more fundamental level, which I think, uh, you know, when you're taking a long-term view will really matter. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I hope that people go back and listen to that 
section we just talked about because unit economics is the most powerful aspect of a business and you might not even see it in the P&L early on. Just, That's right. Just, just, just the sheer power, which brings us into the next set of questions that I really, I really have been hammering on on a personal note because I've, I've, I've had this anchoring bias towards uh, investing in lower PE, lower EV to EBIT businesses. And it's something that I'm actively and publicly trying to rid myself of where I shouldn't focus on these you know, quantitative metrics. I should focus on the unit economics and just the you know, cash generating power of the business. Walk us through why um, you know, sometimes a cheap stock doesn't equal a low PE or a low PE doesn't mean cheap. Sometimes it, a stock's cheap for a reason. How, how long did it take you to really grasp, grasp this? Um, mainly because I'm, I'm still struggling with it and I kind of want this light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so you can sure. tell me, Hey man, it'll, it's only, it's only going to happen for a few more investments and then you'll be good. Sure. Yeah. So when I first started investing, I, I, I sort of took this like, all right, well, I got to be smarter than the next guy kind of approach sort of, uh, I have to have the second level thinking to sort of use the, the Howard Marks, you know, mentality, right? Where, oh, everybody thinks this is a terrible business, right? But actually it's only pretty bad. And therefore I invest at low multiples and, you know, can generate a good return, right? And I think that is not a process that works for me. And frankly, I, I wouldn't really recommend it um, to, you know, even my worst enemies because it's, uh, it's, it's really, it, I think that's just a really difficult way to invest. You're, um, you know, maybe that works in like the credit markets, right? Uh, where you're sort of getting this, you know, guaranteed coupon over time. But, um, you know, it's, I, I think one example for why this rarely works in the public markets is, you know, if you look at like a, a melting ice cube, right? A really low quality business, they generate cash, but the business is clearly going away, mm-hmm. right? There are plenty of examples of those types of melting ice cubes in the market where if you did a DCF for optimal capital allocation, right, um, and sort of melted the ice cube over time and paid out dividends to shareholders, you could probably generate a, a higher, a, a pretty good return for shareholders. Um, however, that's a theoretical exercise, not a practical exercise. And the reality is like very few management teams are willing to admit that their business is terrible and yep. that they shouldn't be investing more capital in it, right? Uh, very few you know, people working at businesses are willing to say, sure, yeah, you should just keep firing 10% of the workforce every year and paying out dividends to shareholders uh, because that is actually the best use of capital, right? It's just not a very um, practical solution. And so what, you know, human incentives take over and management reinvests and they acquire bad businesses. They try to, you know, diversify out of their bad business, they end up diversifying, to use the, the Lynch term, uh, you know, it, it, it ends up destroying value. And you see this over and over. And so, um, you know, I, a lot of the stocks I invest in look expensive on a trailing basis, but the, in my, you know, my, but I think they're very cheap on a forward basis. And the reason, the reason is one, I'm looking for really high quality businesses. And if you find a very high quality competitively advantaged business that can grow the type top line that has a moat around really good sort of unit economics and therefore returns on capital, then pretty quickly with decent revenue growth, like you're going to be generating a lot of cash, right? And yeah. it's going to scale um, yeah. in a pretty powerful way. And particularly because I'm focused mostly on, you know, you know, smaller cap stocks, often you have this dynamic where, you know, a company may have great unit economics, but they haven't scaled their fixed costs yet. And so from traditional metrics, you know, uh, EBITDA, net income, EBITDA margin, et cetera, they don't look or screen attractively. In fact, yeah. they may screen uh, as very expensive. But if you understand those unit economics, then you better understand the function of the business, right? The model. Mm. And yep. then when you extrapolate that with your industry view, with your competitive view of how things evolve, looking out three to five years, it becomes extremely cheap. And that to me is sort of like the sweet spot I really try to focus on because I'm always trying to look three to five years out. I'm trying to have a um, sort of very differentiated view and by understanding your economics, by understanding competitive advantage, by understanding, you know, changing industry structures. And uh, I don't think that there's, you know, look, it's really easy to screen by low PEs, low price to book, et cetera, yeah. right? All the computers, the most basic computer can do it today. 
And so I'm highly skeptical that, you know, that approach, which may have worked uh, very well systematically in the past, will generate any meaningful alpha going forward. Um, you know, I think meaningful alpha comes from understanding businesses better and having a, a differentiated view in high quality businesses. Yeah. And then it's finding those businesses that are at that inflection point, like you said, where they haven't leveraged their fixed costs yet. So the operating leverage isn't reflected in the financials. And then that's where that alpha comes in because the quants and those screens, they're all backward looking. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the biggest thing that I realized with actually, you know, my, my second, or I think it's now my first largest holding, um, it's, it's, it's this exact same thing. It's this really small micro cap company that is a manufacturing business and they've been plowing money into upgraded equipment to meet excess demand. And so everything's being run through the P&L. They're massive operating losses. But if you step back and you think, okay, if I was the business owner, would I be doing exactly this? And it just, it just goes back to what you said earlier. Think like the business, how would you act? And you know, yeah, who cares if the PL looks awful right now, you're investing all this money now because you know that in the future, you're going to be able to leverage those costs. Yep. Yep. I think that makes, that makes sense. And, and you know, just to be clear, that's, that's not the only type of sort of situation we look for in terms of leveraging fixed costs, things like that, but that type of dynamic where, you know, three years from now, the margin profile looks very different than it does on a, you know, trailing three-year, you know, look, uh, that is very often the case in, in businesses I'm, I'm looking at exploring because I'm trying to find dynamic change, which, you know, the market will have a tough time doing because, you know, the market likes to look 12 months forward, the market likes to extrapolate, um, and the market likes to apply, you know, a, a clean, simple multiple on, yeah. uh, on a company with a lot of comparables. And when it does it, it's generally efficient. So I'm specifically trying to find, you know, these opportunities where, that is not an easy exercise where valuation is more of an art, right, than a science. But if you really dig in, um, understand sort of the qualitative things that are going on, you can, with a reasonable degree of accuracy, ballpark the quantitative future and therefore value the company. Yep. yep. And I like, I like you mentioned, you mentioned this, how the market likes to simplistically put a multiple on it. In that same simplistic vein, in your last letter, you released uh, the DCF for, for, for one of your holdings. And I just was struck by how, how simple and how clean and how seamless it was. It's not, you know, the super like complicated DCF where you're going into astronomical tabs and everything's on decimal points and stuff. It's just very simple. And it goes back to that thing. If you understand the business, you can just write it on the back of an envelope, write it on the back of a napkin um, and do, and do that three to five years out. I do want to ask a couple questions about your valuation method, not in terms of the numbers per se, but just in terms of how you think about a range of outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if we look at, uh, Stephen Wood likes to call it a cone of potential probabilities. And when you're trying to find these dynamic businesses, what kind of base rates do you use or what kind of scenarios? Like, do you do a pessimistic and optimistic and then this base rate? And then how do you think about the specifically like the top line and the margins that go into each of those scenarios? Yeah. So a uh, couple of things. So one, I, I rarely do a DCF. Um, I, I occasionally do for specific scenarios, but I'm typically looking three to five years out um, and I'm looking at sort of whatever the most relevant sort of multiple is. And then, you know, you can sanity check that with a DCF, but I'm typically looking three to five years out and uh, you know, whether it's you know, EBITDA or free cash flow or earnings multiple, um, thinking, thinking through it on that basis and, and often accounting for sort of cash build in the interim period as well. I'm always thinking in terms of IRR so, um, you know, look, a, a, anything less than sort of 15% IRR is probably not going to be interesting. Generally, anything less than 20% probably is not going to be interesting either. Um, once you start getting beyond that, like once you start getting 30% plus sort of IRR in a base case, that, that starts to really pique my interest. But uh, uh, it, it often, you know, it obviously depends on how much risk is required to get there, what my conviction level is in my estimates, et cetera. But I, I typically have three scenarios. I typically have a bear base and bull scenario. Um, you know, for, of course, I'll make exceptions for a company that maybe needs more scenarios or I need to flex some specific variable um, more thoughtfully. But, um, you know, I, I basically try to put myself in the, in the um, mind of Mr. Market, right? And say, okay, well, how would Mr. Market value this, you know, three years from now based on what I know, which the market hmm. doesn't generally know, right? Yeah. So if... If we, if we got 100 reasonable investors together and said, look, this is what the next three years looks like for this business, how would you value it three years from now 
I think, you know, you, you can reasonably forecast that. Uh, what type of multiple will they pay for it? How do you think about that? Um, but, you know, all the, all the assumptions in terms of the, you know, revenue margins, et cetera, comes from, you know, all of the fundamental research, right? All the right. industry work, all the fund, uh, unit economic analysis. Um, the actual valuation piece tends to be easier. Like what multiple are you going to put on it basically, right? And you can, yeah. you can handicap that. But if you know what the future looks like, you can generally with a reasonable degree of accuracy say, all right, this is sort of what it might be uh, be valued at in this base case with this type of rev revenue growth profile, with this type of margin profile, with this type of return on capital. It's more about getting the fundamental estimates right than it is about, you know, getting the multiple, right? I don't think there's a lot of like uh, alpha and, you know, being able to predict, oh yeah, the market's going to pay this multiple instead of this. Like you can kind of figure it out if you know what the fundamentals look like. It's more about getting the fundamentals right. Yeah. Have you read uh, Expectations Investing by Morrison? It's been a yeah. while, but I have. Great yeah, book. I, yeah, I yeah, uh, I read in January, and I'm I'm probably gonna probably gonna reread it because it's almost that 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 same idea where it's like if you can put yourself three years in the future, what what is the market expecting at that point, and then how would the market reflect those expectations? Right. My yeah. The only thing I'd say about that is I think my process is a little different because, and again, it's been a while since I've read it, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know that approach is sort of saying okay, well, what expectations are currently embedded in the yeah. price? Right. And, you know, there's a couple issues with that, obviously, because there's a lot of different ways you can construct a DCF, right, to figure yeah. out, uh, you know, <laughs> you so can make it do whatever price it wants. Yeah. Not only that, but you could have it come out with two equivalent prices with very different like free cash flow growth profiles. Right. Um, yeah. You could have it, you know, have really high margins uh, well into the future or, you know, lower margins, but earlier, like there's a lot of trade-offs there. So I'm not sure how you actually get to what expectations are. Mm. Um, you know, for larger names, you can generally look at consensus to have a decent proxy for what, uh, you know, estimates are. But, uh, you know, my process is more, okay, if I know what the fundamentals are, what do I think the market will value it at? And it's more about knowing those fundamentals than, uh, you know, placing any value on like, uh, oh, I, I really think the market should value it at XYZ multiple instead of you know, what it's trading at today. If anyone has any doubts where Connor lies in terms of the importance of fundamentals, I think those, <laughs> those speculations have been laid to rest in this podcast. I think people are going to come away with saying, you know what, Connor really places an emphasis on fundamentals. And I, I love it. You're consistent. And I, I, love, I love that fact. And we're coming up on the hour mark. So I want to I wanna spend the last two sections discussing uh, your second quarter letter. I know that's coming out soon. And uh, like I said, you knocked the socks off the ball. And I want to give you a chance to just kind of share how, how your quarter went, what were, what were some of the good, good parts about it, bad parts about it. And then after that, we can discuss your favorite industries going forward and where, where you would like to deploy capital um, over the next 10 to 20 years, industry specific. So go ahead and talk to us about your second quarter. How did it go? And what were some highlights? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it was a dynamic quarter, just as the first quarter was, uh, but in a different way. Uh, so in Q2, we were up 66.7% growth, 60.5% net. Uh, you know, that brought year-to-date returns to 22% uh, growth, 17.2% net. Um, you know, so you know, roughly two and a half years in, you know, we've compounded uh, over 40% growth and over 30% um, net on an annualized basis, which, you know, not frankly, bad. Is, uh, <laughs> not bad, Connor. <laughs> look, we're, I'm definitely very proud of the results. Um, you know, obviously we've had a very significant, you know, small and micro cap headwind, like both the Russell 2000 and the Russell micro cap are down over that period of time in gross terms. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, you know, we had a very significant style headwind. So proud of that, but, um, it's more about just focusing on the process because look, I, I'm, the results are probably not sustainable. I, I'd love to, continue to put up really good market beating results, but you got to focus on the process, not the outcome. And, uh, you know, look, I think it's a very interesting setup because like, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, you know, the hedge fund industry, more assets have gone to larger managers. This is left. And also from a research perspective, right. All, all the banks are cutting research, right. And where are they cutting first? They're cutting for small cap stocks. Yep. And so you, you have this dynamic where like, Small and micros are getting less attention than ever before, both from, you know, actual funds, because it's, it's been a difficult environment to raise funds for smaller uh, managers, and also from a, you know, bank perspective, from research. And so I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And frankly, those that are able to buck the trend will uh, have a very fertile ground for alpha 
um, over the sort of medium to long term. So I think that's pretty interesting. In terms of industries I like going forward, I mean, look, I think uh, the market's obviously uh, really loving software and, and technology and everything else. And, you know, for, for a lot of good reasons, but I do think that there are some companies that, um, you know, have some of the characteristics of, you know, say technology stocks, but maybe don't carry that uh, industry code. What I, what I mean by that is there are some asset light companies with really strong brands with high returns on capital and dominant positions in their industry, but they may not provide, you know, software. And so, you know, examples would be like something like um, Expel, which I've talked about before. I mean, they, which I full disclosure do own. So, you know, they, they provide, you know, paint protection film to cars, right? Uh, not necessarily a, a sexy SaaS name in the market today, but you know, they've, they've been one of the best, if not the best buy and hold stock over the last 10 years, right? They've, um, uh, they've got an extremely strong competitive environment. They're, I think they've, they've got a runway for, for strong growth for the next, you know, five to 10 years. And so, you know, that, I think investors who get too focused on like the market narrative, which is, okay, SaaS stocks are amazing. Technology stocks go to the moon. will forget that the reason why a lot of those companies trade where they do, or at least the perceived reason why is because they're able to grow revenues without much incremental cost because they're asset light because exactly. they have really high returns on capital that exists in other industries as well. It may not be exactly the same, but given the, um, you know, given the fervor over, uh, you know, some of these SaaS stocks, I think looking for other niches in the market is probably going to generate some better IRRs over the next, over the next five years. Uh, so I, I'm trying to find the sort of off the beaten path industries, off the beaten path ideas, but still find um, really high quality businesses. I love that idea. It's just, it's just, it's just a second level approach to that industry and sector uh, specific appreciation. It's not, you know, why do you like technology? It's not because they're technology. It's because of those underlying factors that you mentioned. It's because it's high margin, low incremental capital expenditures, asset light businesses. That's why you like tech. It's not you like tech because of tech. Right. Um, and I and I and I just love the idea of using what you like about a specific business to then influence where you find them. And maybe even now that you notice that tech is. I don't want to say this overfish pond because it's so big, but notice those qualities and then try to find them, like you mentioned, in these other non-sexy businesses. If we, if, we, if we flip that question on its head, what industries don't you want to touch for the next you know, five to 10 years with a 10-foot pole? Or maybe you know, it's, that's, that's just kind of a, a dumb question because there could always be a great business in a bad industry that bucks the trend. Well, there certainly could always be exceptions, but um, you know, look, I would say one right off the top of my head would be physical casinos. I think if you look at what's happened with retail over you know the last decade, right, just getting decimated by online competition, we were we were way over retailed, uh, right, as a country. I think we're over casinoed as well. Uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, for the same reasons I liked some of the online casino players during COVID. I think a lot of that sort of share shift um, is the start of a or is the continuation of a an acceleration of a, a longer term trend, which is and I think a lot of the, we're over casino and I think a lot of these things have to, um, we'll have to close. I think there could be a lot of bankruptcies. I think, uh, yeah, physical casinos, you know, not, and this is not just a COVID, uh, you know, common, obviously COVID introduces, you know, concerns for that model as well, but right. look, they've got really high fixed costs. They've got a lot of leverage. They need constant traffic. And I think the online experience is getting better and better. I think the regulatory environment is getting better and better. And I think as a result, um, you know, casinos, physical casinos are, are going to be in a tough spot. And certainly there'll be some that will be able to leverage their scale and have good online offerings and you know, have good locations and things like that. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not really looking at a lot of physical casinos right now. Is there a country, I know you're a fan of Sweden, but is there a country outside of the U.S. and Sweden that you're particularly fan of and finding some rich opportunities? That's a good question. Uh, you know, we'll go anywhere as long as it's a developed market and a business we can understand. I think, um, you know, even though we haven't had a lot of names there recently, I think, I think the U.K. is, uh, is an interesting place to look. I mean, I think there's been a lot of particularly smaller companies that um, – 
don't necessarily trade at the same valuations as their U.S. peers. What, and, and as a broader comment, I do think that there's a lot of valuation arbitrage between companies, right? Like looking at you know, some of the business models we study, particularly in online gambling, where there's a lot of international players, it's, it's staggering to see some of the valuation gaps between a you know, large cap, you know, U.S.-based company with Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and every other sort of major bank covering it in the U.S. versus, say, a small cap that trades internationally, right? They may have the same quality of business, uh, but the valuation sort of multiples will be very, very different in yeah, general. It's, it's and insane. so I think, I think that is an opportunity, though, for investors because uh, they can exploit that arbitrage. And, and ultimately, you know, um, if the U.S. market continues to be as strong, some of those companies will will grow, uh, will find their way to, the, to a U.S. listing, right, or be acquired. There's, there's a lot of different ways um, this could manifest itself, but I'm definitely looking more international than I, um, than I have and maybe ever. Uh, and I think understanding sort of developed international markets will be, will be very critical in, in um, you know, producing alpha over the next five years because the, the valuation gap versus U.S. peers can be, can be pretty astonishing. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, whenever, <laughs> as soon as as soon as you said you're starting to look overseas more than ever, I just thought of the GIF uh, from the Wolf of Wall Street, the One of Us GIF, because that because that's because that's pretty much all I've been doing is just is just trying to go X US. Not that I'm not finding stuff in the US, but I just find it more exciting, and I think there's more arbitrage, like you said. Um, so let's 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 go to our closing questions now, because I mean I think we're gonna hit this right on an hour. But what's one thing about your investment process currently that you want to improve on over the next three to five years? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I, I mean, forty percent annualized return though it begs the question. You might no, be no, it. look. There's, there's, there's always. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. This is a humbling business. There's, there's so many ways you can improve. I think Buffett, you know, has and would say he's still learning. Um, so look, I think um, it's, it's funny we just talked about the international because what I was probably going to say to this would be. Um, getting more ingrained into some of these international markets, like really understanding some of the differences between various exchanges, um, you know, doing more international research trips, right. To visit, you know, visit a bunch of comp uh, companies in, in, in various countries. I think, you know, becoming a more sophisticated international investor is a, is a key priority. And that could be, you know, hiring an analyst that could be spending more time over there. But, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities and um, I think in general, I always like to get sort of get my hands dirty, test products. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing research, I don't like just to sit in my office and, you know, re re read things. I like to go see things, talk to management teams, touch a product. Um, eat some meatballs. Eat some meatballs. Exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and so I think, yeah, it, it, becoming a better international investor is probably the number one priority. Where can people go to find more about you, Connor? Yeah, uh, they can go to my website. It's probably the best place. It's just altafoxcapital.com. I've got my previous letters, um, some sample ideas on there. Uh, they can also follow me at, uh, at altafoxcapital um, on Twitter. All right, last question. I ask every guest if you could have dinner with one person from the past or present, who would it be and why? That's a really interesting question. I would say, you know, if we ignore, uh, say like historical figures, you know, the Abraham Lincolns of the world, et cetera. Yeah. I think um, I would say Joel Greenblatt, honestly, like I, I've, I feel like, uh, you know, I learned investing by reading my investors club, by following, you know, people on there and um, you know, reading everything I think he's ever written. And so I think uh, he's definitely an investment hero, hero of mine. And uh That'd be pretty cool. So if any of your listeners have a real connection with Greenblatt, <laughs> uh, I'm available at any, at, at any moment. Well, it's actually funny you mentioned that. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell a, tell a Greenblatt story here and it's, it's partially embarrassing for me, but I mean, I don't care. Like it's, 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 it's funny. So I was at a, I was at a Charles Schwab conference back when I worked at an RIA and Greenblatt was giving a talk and I went in there and I got the front row seat. I mean, I was fangirling. Like I got the front row seat. I got my notebook open. I'm taking notes and I knew he was coming. So I printed out one of my spinoff ideas because I know that that's kind of where yeah. he kind of made his living. And so printed off Garrett motion, which in hindsight, right? Great idea to give to Joel Greenblatt or try to give to Joel Greenblatt. Mm -hmm. So I had it printed out. I had my name. I had my, my blog at, you know, my, my market plunger blog, had my number email. 
he gives the talk and he, 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 he finishes, everybody leaves the room. And I'm just like standing there. I'm like, Brandon, you got to go up and talk to him. I'm like, this is your investing hero. Like you got to go up and talk to him. Yeah. And he's not like this intimidating figure at all. He's like my right. height, you know, maybe five, nine, five, 10, five, 11. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit taller than him. And I walk up to him and I'm literally shaking Connor. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I don't like, it sounds so stupid, but I'm like, I got this piece of paper. I've got this right up in my hand and I'm like, Brandon, stop shaking. Like, stop doing that. And I told him, I'm like, Hey, Joel, you know, huge fan. You're, you know, you're one of the biggest mentors that I had growing up, uh, you know, learning about investing. And here's my pitch on Garrett motion. I'd love for you to look at it and, (laughs) and read it. And maybe if you got any comments, you know, my numbers there, my emails there. And I just love to pick your brain. And he was like, yeah, thanks. So, I mean, he was, he was, he was gracious. And, and I, and then I stopped, I'm like, Brandon, you got to ask him like to coffee. Like you just got to do it. Cause who knows yeah. if you're, you know, cause who knows? And I was like, Hey Joel, you know, this is going to be, this might sound crazy. And I know you're busy, but I was wondering if I could, you know, grab a cup of coffee, take you out to coffee. And he was like, thanks. Um, but you know, I'm kind of busy right now, which I expected, but that was my one Greenblatt moment. And uh, it was just, it was crazy. I pitched him. I pitched him one of the worst ideas I had that year. <laughs> well, uh, that's a cool story though. And, uh, yeah, he's a nice guy, but, uh, I mean, yeah, he, he's a legend. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, what he was able to achieve is, is pretty remarkable. And I think it also comes through in all of his writing though. You know, I yeah. encourage, you know, when, when people ask like, Hey, you know, I'm, I want to learn more about investing. What do you recommend? I, I just tell them like, go read the best investors ever and everything they've put out there. And to Mm -hmm. me, Joel Greenblatt is right up there with anybody. And so read his Columbia business school notes, read, you could be a stock market genius, like read everything on Vic, which, you know, he found it, right? Like just, just go read that. There's so much learning there, frankly, better than I think you could get in any sort of formal training program anywhere. So uh, yeah, Joel Greenblatt, any, any of your listeners have a connection. I'm available for dinner anytime. (laughs) Perfect. And we've got Connor's Twitter out there and we're, you know, you, you've, you've got his sites, but if you've got that connection, let him know. Um, <laughs> Connor, remember me when you're sitting at the dinner table being like, Hey, remember that kid, Brandon, that pitched you that terrible idea. <laughs> Garrett motion. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> awesome. All right, Connor, thanks so much for your time. I look forward to talking to you again and have a great rest of the year. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.